Baruch Hashem. Today's study is going to be uh, from a conversation that many of us brothers had one night, and we were just throwing it down about the virgin birth of Yeshua. Apparently, this is one of the four tenets why Jews don't believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. So we just tackled it. We just went for it. We got down an offensive lineman stand. I didn't say defense. I said offensive lineman stand. And uh, we ran the ball. We ran the ball. But if you will open up your Bibles to Isaiah 7.14, we're going to have to start there. I kind of see and envision this drosh as being sectioned off into four quadrants. Number one, first, the first quadrant, we need to deal with the word Alma and Betula, 100%. Number two, we need to deal with, um, I'm debating on whether or not to mix two and three. We'll just have to let the, let the flow go on that. Um, but we need to deal with this idea of if he is born of a virgin, then he has no rightful claim to the Davidic throne. We need to address that. We need to address that. Number three, we need to get deep into the rabbinic works, the Midrash. There's a lot of Gemara, and there's a lot of uh, tie-ins between Miriam, Yeshua's mother, and Elisheva, John the Baptist's mother, and how they compare to Sarah and Hannah and Yochaved and many other matriarchs in the Torah, the Tanakh. And then number four, the fourth quadrant, we're going to discuss just very briefly a little topic, uh, scientific topic on um, a virgin giving birth. Because, you know, when I was in medical school working on my Ph.D. Uh, from the Harvard Medical School, you know, we, we talked about a lot of this stuff back then. So, anyways, Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 14. Let me turn there myself. Isaiah 7, 14. So here's where all the bombs start dropping. <clears throat> what does this say here? Verse 13. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself, say Lord himself, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Who's going to give the sign? Uh. So we need to underline that. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I know many of you have different versions. That's fine. But in the Hebrew, the word is Alma. But let's, let's, before we get to Alma for virgin, or young maiden, as your version probably says, let's talk about the word Emmanuel. Right? Im, with, new, us, and El, God. And it's pouring down rain right now. Emmanuel. That's it. Let's wrap it up. That's the drosh right there. It's, it's confirmed. Everything I'm going to say here on out is divine truth. Okay. The name Emmanuel in the Bible occurs twice in the Tanakh. 
And both times they're in Isaiah. How about that? The first part is here and the second one is in chapter 8, verse 8. And it says that the spread of the wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So if you can count, fast forward 700 years, take this date and add 700 years to it, you have Yosef and Miriam, where Yosef finds his betrothed to be with child. You can imagine there'd be probably a little tension in that situation, a little tension. But what happens is there's an intervention with that tension, and that is an angel drops in to kind of clear things up a little bit. What does he say? The child will be called Emmanuel. This Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Now, we don't, at least that I know of, there's never been a record of Yeshua being called Emmanuel. So how do we reconcile that? Because that's a problem. We know that in chapter 9 of Isaiah, that his name will also be called Peleoetz, El Gibor, Aviad, and Sar Shalom. Right? But do y'all run around calling him Peleoetz? I've never heard somebody say, hey, I was, you know, reading about Peleoetz the other day. I said, what? You reading about who? El Gibor? Okay. So we're starting to understand that, that he will eventually... 100% be called Emmanuel, but at this time, they named him Yeshua. Which, by the way, was the most common name in the land at that time. Nothing fancy about Yeshua. Lots of Yeshua's running around. So the question is, this prophecy does not prophesy about a virgin birth. It has nothing to do whatsoever with Yeshua. That's what they say. And then, of course, 700 years, this, was, this prophecy was given before he was even born. So there's a disconnect. Of course, followers of Yeshua, just like Matthew when he was writing, and Luke, they say, oh, this is it. This is the scripture that totally defines the scenario that we're in. Now, remember this. When you're addressing such a powerful, explosive topic like this, uh, you're talking about the virgin birth, one of the tenets of our faith is you have to put this scripture in context. Context is key. Context is everything. And the context is that the prophet is talking about a supernatural event that will affect the house of David. And apparently, it's going to include the birth of a royal child. Right? I mean, you can't really argue that. So let's look a little further into the context of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The people of Judah had a crisis on their hands. They was being attacked from the northern tribes of Israel. Huh? Being attacked. And what did they want to do? They wanted to attack the tribe of Judah. And their goal was to remove the king. That's what they wanted to do. Had to go through Judah 
to remove the king. And they armed up, and they joined with all the Arameans, and there they were. Now, Isaiah was sent by God to try to divert this situation. Because any attack on the throne of the king is an attack on the dynasty of the Messiah. So now there's a prophetic utterance that needs to come forth, and that's why Isaiah was called. So the prophet is sent. The problem is the current king who is in David's line is Ahaz. And he didn't care. He didn't have any faith in God, right? How many, how many leaders actually do have faith in God? Look at our current situation. You know, it takes a whole pandemic across our globe to get a leader to even say the name of God. Can't beat stuff like this with just laboratory tubes and scientific knowledge and research. Sometimes you need the hand of God to move, and that's exactly what the predicament was Ahaz found himself in. He refused to ask God for a sign because that's what God said to do. In verse 11, let me read it to you. Moreover, in verse 10, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God and ask it either in the depth or the height above. And he would not ask for a sign so the Lord said okay I got a sign for you you don't want to ask me for one well I've got a sign for you here now you house of David look at verse 13 and verse 14 here now O house of David is it a small thing for you to weary men but you will weary my God also therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign so now the prophet is speaking directly from God to Ahaz. You should have asked him for a sign. But now he's going to give you a sign himself. The Alma will be with child. That's where the controversy comes in. Who is the Alma? What is the Alma? And how do we translate Alma from Hebrew into English? There's a lot of different ideas on what this sign is going to be. Is it going to be that uh, some say a child will be born a boy? Is that a big sign? Have a boy? You got a 50-50 shot at that, right? Uh, will we call the baby Emmanuel? So is that the sign? You running around and say, hey, little Emmanuel, come here, boy. Come on. Let's play catch. Is that what they're looking for? What else are they looking for? Maybe some people say that... Uh, That the child will be born, and by the time he reaches a certain age, the enemies of Yehuda will be defeated. But the context is key. And the context says that the sign will be supernatural. Why is it going to be supernatural? Because it says an Alma will conceive and bear a son. It can't just be a regular old birthing of a son. It can't be because that happens a lot. So there's, no, there's nothing 
so special about that to take a king and go, wow, a, a boy was born? All right, enemy's got to go now. That's not what happens. So, so there's, there's this Alma and there's a birth of a son. We're going to call him Emmanuel. So we know that that's the sign that Ahaz would, would have. But what's funny is it says the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, Alma means, alas, who is veiled. What do you think about that? It does and can mean a virgin, but that's not exactly what it means. The word Alma, according to the etymology, definitely can refer to a virgin, although it specifically does not mean virgin. It means adolescence. Just like the masculine form of Alma is Elim. For instance, you can have an older woman who is a virgin and not be an Alma. She can't be an Alma. An Alma has to be an adolescence, right? 50, 60 years old and you're a virgin, you're not an Alma. So that's the rub. The Hebrew word is Alma. They say, boom. That proves that she's not a virgin. No, it doesn't prove that because Alma definitely can mean virgin. Well, he should have used the word Betula because Betula means virgin. No, it doesn't. It can, but it does not always mean virgin. How do you know? It means rather a young, marriageable maiden. The word Sometimes is used for a virgin, but often more so for a young and vigorous woman. How do we know? Here's an example. By the way, one of my favorite websites is Aberim Publications. This is where I learn how to break down the etymology of the word in conjunction with the accordant software. Looked all this stuff up. Check it out. Joel 1.8. A Betula is instructed to wait for her deceased husband. So, Betula, in this particular case, does not mean a virgin. What does it mean? It means a young woman. So, we've got an Alma, we've got a Betula now. And either one can mean virgins, but not by default. Context is everything, right? Out of 50 times that the word Betula is used in the Tanakh, 30 of them use maiden instead of virgin. 31 times to be exact. And the stone edition of the Tanakh also uses maiden as well. So, to reiterate, Alma's adolescence, Betula is a young maiden. Both can mean virgin, but necessarily do not by default. Y'all with me? All right. Two verses here that correspond or kind of link up with Isaiah. Number one, Genesis 16, 11, To Hagar, check this out. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Kind of sound a little familiar. Regarding the birth of Samson in Judges 13, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. 
you will conceive and give birth to a son. He said, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Said it, he said it, he said it. Sounds very similar to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7 talks about that this supernatural boy, if it's a supernatural birth, it's a supernatural boy. Right? Okay. That's in Isaiah 7. Isaiah 9, context is key. Let's don't get too far away from home. Stay a little bit closer to the reservation. On chapter 9, what does it say? He's already born. Chapter 7 is the prophecy. Chapter 9 is he's declared the divine king. And in chapter 11, he's ruling and reigning. Now here's where it gets interesting. Because 200 years before Yeshua was born, the Septuagint translates this word Alma as Parthenos, which means virgin. Oh, oh, did y'all hear that? Did y'all hear that? So, 200 years before the birth of Yeshua, the Tanakh is translated into the Greek Septuagint by Jewish scholars. Holler! And what do they translate Alma as in the Greek? Parthenos, which means virgin. How about that? So the Jewish translators... They knew what they were talking about. They knew Hebrew, and they said, mm, virgin. They said virgin. Now, look at this. Rashi's official English translator. This is something that Dr. Michael Brown uh, brought down in his research. <clears throat> uh, Rabbi A.J. Rosenberg. Here's what Rashi said. And some interpret that this is the sign that she was a young girl in Alma and incapable of giving birth. Rashi said that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, yes, he did. Now, here's something else Rashi said. Now, listen, I don't want to put words in his mouth. I'm not going to say that Rashi said Alma means virgin here. He didn't say that. He did not say that Isaiah was prophesying about a virgin. He did not say this, this is, you know, uh, referring to Yeshua. But here's what he said. She would be an Alma, a young girl. For such a woman to give birth would not be normal. How do we know? Because he said she's incapable of giving birth. So we have a supernatural event now. Because the Lord himself is involved. We have a young Alma who's incapable, according to Rashi, of giving birth. And she's giving birth to a child who will be known as Emmanuel, God with us. Man, come on. Somebody ring the bell. I need a break. Ring the bell. Now, not only that, guess what else Rashi mentions in his commentary on this chapter 7 of Yeshiahu. He notes that the plural alamot in Song of Solomon's 1-3 means virgins. And I looked it up in the Hebrew. It says Alma, Song of Solomon's 1-3. It says virgins. So, well, well, why wasn't he called Emmanuel, they say? Well, I mean, 
There's a lot of people that's supposed to be called stuff in the Bible that never were called it. For instance, I'm sure you've heard of these prophecies in Isaiah as referring to Hezekiah. You ever heard that? Okay, when's the last time Hezekiah was called Pelagoets? No, I just want to know. Did, did anybody ever call Hezekiah Aviad? El Gibor? Sar Shalom? Emmanuel? Did they ever call Hezekiah Emmanuel? I don't know of any record of it. If you know of a record, email Rabbi. Because <laughs> I'm out. Now, I will tell you this. There's hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands and millions of people who have referred to Yeshua as Emmanuel. Pelegoets, El Gibor, Aviad. In fact, I used one of my favorite songs from Middle East. Uh, medieval song hymn says, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That wasn't sung about Hezekiah. That was sung about Miriam's son. That's who that song was written about. Do you believe it? Come on. Now, that's one quadrant done. We're doing good on time. Y'all like this? The way we're going with this quadrant stuff? Okay, let's talk about this for a second. If this is one of the four major reasons why Jews don't believe Yeshua is the Messiah, then it's a big deal. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. So I love looking at these big deals in Scripture and because it helps sharpen me, right? Iron sharpens iron. And it's good for all of us to know that just because a little shiny object is dangling in front of us doesn't mean we need to bite it. It's likely a hook that'll rip your mouth off your face. Now what happens is a lot of us start getting into the books. We build a little small library, and man, we are on fire to be Super Jew. Bum, 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 SJ. Super Jew. Now what does Super Jew do? Super Jews start seeing all these little ornaments that shiny. I mean, they're so pretty. We, uh, boom, bam, got one. And all of a sudden, you don't believe in the virgin birth anymore. All of a sudden, bam, bit one, huh, no resurrection. Uh, whoo, that's pretty, man. It looks like a little worm, a little gold worm. Boom, bah, got him. He's not divine. He's just another man. No, I don't think so. When's the last time you've ever heard anybody called Pelegoets? El Gibor? I mean, I'm thinking of anybody at school you ever known called Aviad, Eternal Father? Anybody? You ever heard that before? Hey, Mom, I'm going to go over to Sar Shalom's house and spend the night. She goes, is that the one in Saginaw? I said, yes, yeah, the one. No, 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 no. Hey, Mom, uh, can I go over to Emmanuel's house? You know? I mean, think about it. Those are powerful, powerful words. God with us. So we have to be careful to study these things out so that we're not biting false fool's gold, lures. And we're not being told that, that the Mashiach, because I'm going to explain this in a minute, why it's so important for him to be born of a virgin. But this is an absolute concrete Jewish concept. 100%. They say, well, quadrant number two. He can't be 
born of a virgin because if he is, that means, what does it mean about the throne of David? That means that he's not the rightful heir to the throne of David because Joseph's not his real father. Right? Oh, I like that. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. Okay. We're working our ways through it. Well, here's, here's a Gemara. Ooh. Sanhedrin 98A. For all, everybody that's watching this, I want this study to be one of the marquee pinned studies so that you can keep your faith in Yeshua. Huh? That's what I'm talking about. Will the Messiah, the son of David, come with the clouds of heaven as indicated in Daniel 7? This is Sanhedrin 98A. Or will he come riding on a donkey as written in Zechariah chapter 9? If we are worthy, he will come in the clouds. And if we are unworthy, he will come riding on a donkey. Now that's not an either-or scenario there. Both of those things must happen. They both must happen. Now, what do we mean by the son of David? The Messiah is the son of David, and the Messiah is greater than David. Riding on the donkey of the Messiah is the earthly one. But there's another Messiah that can come in the clouds of glory, and he's the heavenly one. So you have two dimensions to this supernatural child. So if I'm allowed to say Isaiah 7, 14, is this same guy here in the Gemara. This is not, by the way, just another scripture that we can overlook and pretend like doesn't exist because when you go to the Besorah, which we will here in a few minutes this is one of the key indicators of who this child is this child is born of a virgin Joseph was very upset because he was a tzaddik and because he was a tzaddik he didn't want to bring shame on Miriam and all of a sudden, you have this prophecy that literally matches up with the situation at hand. Interesting. Now, this is not your everyday run-of-the-mill guy. This is not another birthing of a baby boy. This is the Lord is involved with this virgin giving birth. That's what the scripture says. And it has to do with the defense of the throne of David. So you can't say that it, he, it, because he, Joseph's not his real father that he doesn't have access to the throne of David. Because what did Gabriel say? What did Gabriel say to Miriam when she said, I've not known a man? He said, well, that's okay because he's going to be on the throne of David. That's what Gabriel said to her. Well, how's he going to be on the throne of David? Isn't that, isn't that good? Come on, man. That's what I'm talking about. So how could the Messiah be David's son and yet be greater than David? Woo! It's only through the virgin birth, folks. It's only through the virgin birth. Now, I know a lot of people don't like that, but hey, y'all got your Bibles? Okay. Luke chapter 3. I want to show y'all something that's just going to blow you away. Luke chapter 3. All my HCOs, everybody online, Luke chapter 3. HCOs, I haven't forgot about you. Luke chapter 3. Y'all going to love this, man. 
I should be in a ninja uh, hazmat suit, right? That's my hazmat suit, it's a ninja, ninja suit. But if you look at Luke chapter 3, watch this, watch this. This is verse 22, 322. It says, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove. Right? Is that what it says? And then what does it say? It says, there was a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now the Gemara said the Messiah will come riding in the clouds. But look what the next verse says in verse 23. Yeshua began his work and he was about 30 years old. He was considered the son of Yosef ben Ali. Whoa, now he's riding on a donkey. Look what just happened. In those two verses, we see Sanhedrin 98a with David, the son of David, and the greater than David. Here's a midrash. If you, if you look at the midrash to Isaiah 52, 13, which states that the Messiah will come out of David, the midrash says he'll be higher than Abraham and he will be lifted above Moshe. And loftier than the ministering angels get you some. That's Yakut Shimoni 2571. And you can see on my notes that I have a face here that cannot believe that. Let it be documented right here. That's right. I got another one over here on the other page too. So we know that we have right here in Luke 3 that we have the Son of God, and then we also, the very next verse, we have the Son of Man. We have one that is David's son, and then we have one that is greater than David. There is something about this supernatural birth of this Alma. Oh, but if he's not Joseph's son, he has no right to the throne of David. Is that right? What happens uh, when a man dies and he has no sons and he only has daughters? Does the inheritance just die out? Is that what happens? No, that ain't what happens. Numbers 27, 1 through 11. Numbers 36, 1 through 12. The inheritance is passed through the daughters. Okay? That's number one. Number two, number two, Who's to say that Miriam did not marry within the same tribal family? No, I'm just, but I'm, I'm just asking a question. That's all I want to know. Who's to say that? Because if she married in the same tribal family, Joseph was a Yehudite and a descendant of David. Listen to this. Uh, This is another one of my faces. This is a German scholar, Holtzmeister, from, uh, and I got this from Dr. Brown. Holtzmeister argues that Mary was an heiress, had no brothers, whose father Eli, in line with the biblical tradition, concerned with the maintenance of the family line in cases where there was no male heir. That's Ezra 2.61, Nehemiah 7.63, Numbers 32.41, 1 Chronicles 2.21-22, 34.35, Numbers 27.3 and 8. On the marriage of his daughter to Joseph, adopted Joseph as his own son. 
So Matthew gives Joseph's ancestry by birth, but Luke gives it by adoption. Now that's just, that's a good take. That's a good take. I like that. I like that, but I want to go a little deeper. I want to go a little deeper. 1 Chronicles 2, 34-36. Sheshan had no sons, only daughters. He had an Egyptian servant named Jarha. Sheshan gave his daughter in marriage to his servant Jarha, and she bore him, listen to these Hebrew names, Atai, the father of Natan, Natan, the father of Zavad. So Sheshan's genealogy continues through his daughter even when she married an Egyptian because his tribal names continued on into the name of their sons. So if Miriam and Joseph's pedigrees Together provide Yeshua with what? A legitimate right to the throne. Oh, but, but what? We still got, we still doing this? But what? Well, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, he must be through the line of Solomon. No, he don't. Let me tell you what happened to Solomon. This is what Rashi said about Solomon. Listen, I ain't here to beat up on nobody. Solomon had an amazing, amazing story to tell. But he went erred. He went, he erred. And here's what happens. He is given this amazing promise to inherit his father's throne. Does anybody ever talk about Solomon's throne? Or do we talk about David's throne? Is it the house of Solomon or is it the house of David? Okay, there's a reason why that is. Because Hashem warned Solomon. And he said, listen, you can have it all if you, if you do what your father did. You got to keep it. You got to keep all my mitzvahs. You got you to be a light to this world. You cannot be bowing down or worshiping their idols. And then 1 Kings 11 documents his sin. We're talking nasty stuff like Moloch. He, he just went astray. And then 1 Kings 11 talks about the consequence. Here's what the consequence says in Sanhedrin 2.6. Megillah 11b, is there not a Solomon? He did not retain his kingdom until his death. What did Rashi mean by that? He did not complete his kingship for he was expelled. And you can look that up uh, in uh, the Babylonian Talmud, Gittin 68b, where Solomon did not return to his throne. So this idea that access to the throne of David has to go through the line of Solomon is just not true. It's not true. <clears throat> was, was the Lubavitcher Rebbe the descendant from Solomon? No, he wasn't. He wasn't. But, you know, allegedly they claim he's the descendant of uh, David. And that's good enough for them, for the Chabad. Why? Because that's what matters, the house of David. It's not the house of Solomon. It's not the throne of Solomon. It's the, it's the throne of David. So I think we can, we can clearly see here that both Miriam and Yosef had, especially through their union, whether or not the adoption is true or not, some, many scholars believe that. But we, we can see two genealogies here, and both of them go back to David. So Yeshua is definitely through, through this union, not through his birth, but through the union, he has a legitimate right to the throne of David. All right. Y'all liking this? I got a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Okay. Luke 
chapter 1. Everybody turn to Luke chapter 1. And let's just, let's just read a little bit here about some compatibilities that we have with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And a little take that I got as I was doing my studies, had a beautiful revelation. Never seen this before. Y'all ready? Luke chapter 1, verse 5. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1. Lucas. Nice Greek name. Lucas. Lucas, look here. Verse 5. There was a priest in the days of Hordos, the king of the land of Yehuda. His name was Zechariah. The vision of the division of Aviyah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aharon, whose name was Elisheva. Right? So, Abraham and Sarah, let's compare the two. Abraham was a priest, right? Okay, verse 6. Both of them were righteous before God, walking with integrity of all the mitzvot Hashem and his statutes. We can definitely say Abraham and Sarah were righteous. Verse 7, they had no child because Elisheva was barren, and both of them were advanced in days. Huh? Sound familiar? Abraham and Sarah. It was on the day of his priestly service before God, the order of his division to burn incense. Skip down to uh, verse 12. Zechariah saw this and was alarmed, and terror fell upon him, and the angel said to him, well, first of all, how many times did Hashem appear to Abraham and said, hey, don't fear? Abraham was a little scared. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not fear, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Elisheva, your wife, will bear you a son. That sound familiar? Verse 14 says, He will be to you a joy and delight. What does Itzhak mean? There's a joy involved. Huh? And then verse 18 how do we know? Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know? For I've grown old. My wife is advanced. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 15. Look at verse 20. But see, you will be mute and not able to speak until the days that the word is established. Because you did not believe my words, but they will be fulfilled at their appointed time. The Midrash says that when the mother Sarah, when our mother Sarah, gave birth to Itzhak at the same time all the barren women were visited, remembered by God, and all the deaf were giving hearing, and all the blind were given sight, and all the mute were given speech, and all the madmen were restored to soundness of mind. Look at verse 41. A little prophesying starts going on. Brings me back to my roots. Had a lot of prophecy when I was a kid. When Elisheva heard Miriam's bracha, the child danced inside of her, and Elisheva was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting because in Genesis 11, it says that Iscah was the daughter of Haran. Iscah means, what does it mean? It means she is a prophetess. And according to, according to uh, the tradition, Sarah is Iska of Genesis 11 as one of the seven prophetesses of Israel mentioned in Scripture. 
In fact, her prophetic level and gifting was higher than Abraham's. The Megillah 14a says she's one of the seven prophetesses of Israel. Why? Because she's called Iscah. She foretold by the Holy Spirit of the birth of her son. Sanhedrin 69b, Exodus Rabbah, Shemot 1.1, that Abraham was secondary to Sarah in prophecy. Look at verse 59, chapter 1, verse 59. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they named him Zechariah after his father. The whole institution of circumcision on the eighth day started with Isaac. Look at verse 67. Zechariah, his father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Wow. Well, we know what happened when Sarah was filled with the Holy Spirit and she prophesied. She became one of the greatest prophetesses ever to live on the earth. Now, here's something interesting. If you can take this story of Zechariah and Elisheva and you can take the story of Abraham and Sarah and you can parallel follow those journeys, you end up with both of them having a son, supernaturally. Now we know the Midrash is very clear that Sarah, in fact, her giving birth at 90, Abraham at 100, was so foreign of a concept that some of the rabbis believe she didn't even have a womb. And it was created. Other rabbis believe that her virginity was restored to her at 90. Youthfulness. It says, will I have pleasure again, she said. Edna, there's a link to the Garden of Eden here. So they gave birth to Itzhak and Zechariah and Elisheva gave birth to John the Baptist, right? Both forerunners of the Mashiach. Itzhak being a forerunner prophetically, but what's he, what's he foreshadowing? The ram that's going to be caught in the thicket. And what is John being foreshadowed? Why was John beheaded? Because Itzhak was beheaded. Or almost was. That's why... John had to be beheaded because the knife, Abraham's knife, was at Itzhak's throat. Now, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. It says this. This is what Hashem... No, wait a minute. Sorry, 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit... Miriam, let's back up 34. Miriam said to the angel, how can this be? I've not known a man. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Right? It's like somebody asked Rabbi here recently, how did y'all build a kosher mikvah? Rabbi says, very simple. You get the instructions, you build it. You just get the instructions, and you, and you hire the architects, and you build it. I mean... How will I know this? The angel said, uh, duh. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. <laughs> Holler. I mean, think about it. The power of the highest will overshadow you. How do we start this drosh off in quadrant number one? The Lord himself, the Lord himself will cause an alma to give birth. 
What does to overshadow and to cover mean? Well, it means quite simply in the Septuagint, what does it mean? It means skach. It means to cover. What is skach? What do you put on top of a sukkah? And when it says the word was made flesh and the flesh dwelt among, the flesh tabernacled among, the flesh sukkahed among men, how do we know? Why was he able to do that? Because he had the schach. He had the covering of his father. Huh? Huh? I ain't done yet. I got a little bit more. It also means shachan, which means to dwell. Like mishkan, holler. To dwell. There's a dwelling. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. So, What does it mean when it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow you? What does it mean? It means your sukkah will be covered and you will have a mishkan to dwell in. That's what it means. Now, almost done. Look at this. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. It says the Ruach HaKodesh hovered over the waters. She said, I had not known a man. What was the Spirit of God hovering over? A world that was without form and void. Right? It had not known a man. Everything in creation is from a virgin birth. You know that, right? I mean, if you think about it, the earth that we stand on is from a virgin birth. The mountains you see are from a virgin birth. The ocean is from a virgin birth. None of it became anything until the Holy Spirit hovered it and covered it. The sukkah means nothing without a skach. Without a mishkan, there's no dwelling. There's no dwelling. There's no way Emmanuel is anything if he doesn't have a place to dwell. He has to have a place to dwell if it says Emmanuel, God with us. Well, how's he going to be with us? Through a dwelling, through a shakan, through a mishkan, through a skak, through a sukkah with a skak. Man, I know that's good. I just feel like throwing this whole thing, just chunking it. I mean, I just, I feel it right now, man. Now, one other thing. Here's what Genesis Rabbah says on Bereshit 2, verse 4. This is the spirit of the Messiah, as you read. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and the might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Sound familiar? That's the Isaiah 11 passage. Remember, seven's the prophecy he will be born. Uh, nine is he's the king, and 11, he, he, he is here. It speaks of the Spirit of God as the king, the Messiah, the Messianic king. That's in Genesis Rabbah. This is a, this is a rabbinical thought of the new creation requiring the skak. Every sukkah requires, that's where the chalakah comes from. This passage you, you have to have a covering for there to be a proper halakhic sukkah. 
And in order for God to be with us, there has to be a mishkan. There has to be a dwelling place. Now, I don't know if y'all know the story of Yochaved, but Sarah and Yochaved are related. Both of them very well advanced in age. Both of them barren. Both of them had the restoration to youth. Both of them were, according to rabbinic legend, they had their virgin states renewed to them. Their entire bodies were renewed. And their conception and bearing was painless. In Psalm 113, which is, uh, I believe that's the conclusion of the Hallel that we read between the second and the third cup of wine of the Pesach Seder, is he gives the barren a home, making her joyous mother of children. This speaks of Sarah. So, last but not least, we've covered a lot of ground here, but I want to wrap it up with this. Females, this is the fourth quadrant, my PhD from the Harvard Medical School. I spent some time at Baylor too. The females carry the XX chromosomes while the males are XY. So we know, for instance, there is absolutely no way the woman, Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, had the Y chromosome. They have the XX. Furthermore, for you to be a man, you have to have the Y chromosome. You have to. Or you're a mutant. <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay. The Y chromosome cannot be contributed by females. You understand that? That's basic level medical school. Since human females only have X chromosomes, there would be no way for Yeshua to acquire the Y chromosome. It literally contradicts scientific thought. So, number one, did he get the Y chromosome? Well, we know he was a man, so he did. So... How did he get the Y chromosome? Well, to understand that, you have to ask Adam where he got his Y chromosome from. How will we know? The angel Gabriel says, there's nothing impossible with God. That's the end of my drive right there.